um, as we're singing that last song, I, I just I felt deep down a, a burden for those people in this room who may have been having a hard time singing that. Or they look back over their lives and, and they want to be able to sing and feel the joy in this room, but they're struggling to see perhaps how you've been there during so many trying times of their life when it seems as if um, abuse had the, the, the strongest word or trauma left the strongest word. There was like this deformative work that happened within them in their life because of what other people have done or circumstances have left them broken or even our own choices have left us in this place of guilt or shame and just a mixture of all of it. And sometimes, God, it can be very difficult to, to, to see how you've been there the whole time. But God, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you would reveal the very nature of your compassion toward us right now. That anything I feel is only a tiny, tiny reflection of the tremendous compassion you have for us. Then those times that we felt broken, used and abused, that God, that you were there with tears alongside of us. That the times, God, that we felt like weighted with guilt and shame, God, that you would show us that you're not the one who put that shame upon us. And that, God, that we're able to see, even now, your goodness to us in this moment. The breath in our lungs. The life that you've given to us. And the hope, not just for tomorrow, but forever. That we have been blessed with a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This isn't just doctrine. This isn't just belief. This isn't just abstract ideas. This is the very foundation of our lives. And God, I, but I pray that again, you allow it to sink down and transform even the ways that we've seen our story to see that you've been the God who have been carrying us through in your goodness and in your faithfulness and in your compassion that you have never left us and you never will. And even though we've been beat down, even though we've been discouraged, even though we've struggled to figure out where money's gonna come from, even though we've, we've gone through incredibly difficult things in life, God, you have been the very breath in our lungs the entire time. You've been the one who carried us. And so, Lord, I pray for your healing upon people today. I pray, Father, that you revolutionize the way that we see you. And may it be according to who you show yourself to be in your word. And may you also affirm to us on the Sanctity of Life Sunday the eternal value that you place on every single person in this room. Flood us with your love. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Oh, man, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you, to worship with you. Um, if, if you are new here, my name is uh, Pastor Kirk, um, and it is a privilege uh, to be able to welcome you and have you here. 
Um, let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to dive in on a week, what is it now, three? We three? Yeah, of this series. Um, you think I would know. I would be the first to know. Uh, so um, this past summer, I hit a major frustration point as a parent. And as, as God often does, he uses that moment to teach me something. So one of my kids, who shall remain unnamed, um, has battled a, a fear of water since being a baby. And, and summer before last, or not last summer, the, the previous one, you know, we challenged said kid to not let fear win. But I would sit there in the pool, and I'd say, just jump. Trust me. Trust me. Now you got floaties on, like, you're going to be okay. In the beginning of the summer, terrified, but by the time school started at the end, all my kids were just swimming, swimming like fish, right? Just absolutely loving it. Big win. But then the beginning of last summer, all of a sudden the same fears, hesitations, distrust came back. Said kid, stand there. Come on, jump in. Trust me. Not move. Come on, like, you did this all last summer. You got it this time. Tears start coming. And eventually, I just go up there, pick him up, pick said kid up, bring him, kicking and screaming, in the water. I'm like, all right, see, not so bad, not so bad. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, like, if you only knew how safe you were, if you only knew like, how fun this could be. But as I was thinking about all of this later, the thought came to my mind, pretty certain as God, Kirk, do you always trust me the first time? Blast. <laughs> Blast. Because I always, you know, the things that, when I think about the things that often get me frozen on the side of the pool, right, it, it's money. It's what people think. It's the future. It's my kids. And there have been so many circumstances in my life where, where, you, where you, you're forced to face that fear or anxiety. You turn to God with it. You learn to trust him more. But then, months Sometimes years later, similar circumstances come back, and all of a sudden I find myself sitting on the side of the pool anxious all over again. And I wonder if God's thinking the whole time, I brought you through last time. Why don't you trust me this time? And I'm thinking, did my faith grow at all last time? Like, did I actually change? Anyone else ever been there? And what I realized is that my kid and I, we have trust issues. And I guess if we're honest, we probably all do. We believe in Jesus. Right? That we come to that point, as Christians like to say, where we come to faith. But as the process of growing in faith begins, we realize it rarely goes up and to the right. It often circles and loops and we find ourselves thinking that we got over some fear or some issue only to find ourselves back at the same pool staring at the water again. Does that mean that we never really grew? We never changed? No. I think it just often means that the process is not linear. <laughs> but today we're looking at this question of, but what is faith? And we're asking that so that we can then ask, well, what does it look like to grow in faith. How does faith grow in us? We know that time doesn't automatically equal growth. 
right? That there is something that, that, that happens within us that we participate. How does faith grow in us? And if we want to live from faith, not fear, where do we begin? So when we're in week three of a sermon series called Great is His Faithfulness, Stories of Our Covenant-Keeping God. And we're taking all these questions of faith, and we're going to be looking at this story. When God made a covenant with a man named Abram in Genesis 15. Now you may know him mostly with the name Abraham, which is the name God gives to him two chapters later in Genesis 17. But for this story... Right now in Genesis 15, he's still referred to as Abram. And God has made a promise to Abram, but the question is, will he believe? That back in Genesis 12, God promised Abram that he and his wife would have a son of their own, even though they'd never been able to have kids, and they're well past their childbearing years. And even more, though, God promised that Abram would have so, so many descendants that they would become a great nation that would bless the world. And even though, as we read this story, we recognize that Abram's time, place, and culture are entirely different than our own, he's still human like us. And he still wrestles with faith through this. He had to decide who or what he would trust. And by the time we get to Genesis 15, we realize that Abram and Sarah are even older now than when God made the promise back in Genesis 12. And they still don't have a child of their own. Yet, we'll see just how the Almighty God reveals how astonishingly faithful He is in the midst of this. So we're in Genesis 15 today, which is page 11 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, if you want to turn there with me. And we're going to read the whole chapter But as we do, I want you to try to engage and think, how is it that God is leading Abram to trust? How is it that Abram actually learns trust or faith in the midst of this? Genesis 15. You guys ready? All right. Verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. It's a big statement. We'll get to that in a bit. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. 
And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward you will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age." And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant, everybody say covenant, with Abram, and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of the Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. I practiced. All right. But before we jump in, let's pray. Lord, um, even though there are things in this story that, that seem so different from our life, Lord, allow us to see who you are. And what it means to really trust you in this passage. But God, I pray that your spirit would be on the move. And we know that you're the kind of God who, who longs, wants, even more than we want. You want to build fresh faith in our hearts. So will you open us up? And as a result of your word, God, may you deepen our trust in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. So there's a lot going on in the story, and I wish I had time to unpack everything because we could honestly spend a whole series just on this story alone. But for today, even though this culture and a lot of the things happening in this story may feel strange to us, the center of it is really around the question of faith. And before we dive deeper, what is faith? Because I find that in our culture, we throw around the word faith. But we don't always know what it means. We talk about, well, that person's a person of faith or just have faith. But what does that mean? So let me just clarify from the start. Faith isn't just believing something is true. It's putting our trust in someone or something. Now, before unpacking that, let's get a little context on this story. Because God comes to Abram and he does two things. First, he tells Abram who he is, and second, he makes a promise to him. So first, God comes to Abram, he says, do not be afraid, I am your shield, meaning I am your protector, I am your safety. He says, I am your very great reward. And then he adds on to that in verse 7. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which was his homeland, to give you this land. You see, before God's about to give Abram a promise... God needs Abram to know who he is. Because the basis of Abram believing is not just based off of nothing, it's based off who God is. And if we struggle to trust God, then first the question is, do you know who God is? And then, after God reveals himself, he makes Abram a promise. What is it? Well, he says in verse 4, he says that Abram will have a son from his own body to be his heir. 
Abram's thinking this whole time that his servant Eliezer will have to inherit his estate because he doesn't have a son of his own. And considering that Abram and Sarai, his wife, are no spring chickens, like that's the most likely scenario here. That he's going to have to pass on his estate to Eliezer. But God promises that Abram will not only have a son. He says, your offspring will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And remember, he's living in a land with no light pollution. Like, this is a lot of stars he's staring at. But if he's going to give them that many descendants, they got to live somewhere. So God says, I've also given you a land where you are to live. So God says, Abram, this is who I am. This is what I will do. But what's re- what remains at this point? Will Abram trust? Will he believe what God said, even if it goes beyond his ability to understand? Because you see, faith is ultimately about trust. As, a late, as one late Christian author named Elton Trueblood explains, faith is not belief without proof, but it's trust without reservation. And if faith is about trust, then everyone has faith. Because we all must put our trust somewhere. Right? When, when, when I make it, we make decisions of faith countless times a day. I put, by leaning my body on this table, I'm trusting it's not going to break and break my face right now, Right? When I put these shoes on this morning, I'm trusting they're going to hold up for me today and not break on me. Like, we we give our our lovely production team back there access to our technology because we're showing our total faith and their ability to be able to run it well. Right? And this is why the, the Bible talks about faith and action inevitably go hand in hand. James 2.17 says that faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That faith and action are two sides of the same coin. Because if I sit in that chair, I'm automatically exhibiting with my action that I trust it will hold me up. Right? But if I need to sit, but I choose not to sit in that chair, you have good reason to doubt whether or not I have faith in it. Our actions are the evidence of our faith. But now let's step back. Because... We talk about chairs, talk about shoes, all good and well. But what about the biggest questions of life? What about the questions of identity, purpose, love, eternity, and all the rest? The biggest question is what do we trust or who do we trust with these very things? Because again, it's not if we have faith, but who or what we trust with it. So when Adam and Eve chose in the garden to disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit, they didn't just lose faith in God and what he said, but they put their faith in their own desires or the words of the serpent instead. You guys tracking with me? And so I have a friend who grew up in in a Christian church, but as he got older, he began mostly referring to himself as an atheist. And I've had a lot of conversations with him about this, basically saying, well, why? Because 
he doesn't rationally understand a lot of these big questions about who God is. And so I've had a lot of conversations with him. Like, but it's not that you don't have faith. I said, you have faith in your intellect. You have faith in your mind's ability to, to box God in and, and understand him fully. And that for many people, that, that is exactly where our faith resides. That if we can't personally verify or prove something to be true, then we, we believe by faith that we can't trust it. That's an example of when we put our faith in our minds. You guys tracking with me so far? But I had another, I met another guy, a younger guy, who didn't grow up with Christianity or any understanding of all of this, but he, he became very hungry to learn more about it. And so I ended up getting into a conversation with him. And I thought the best approach to, to help him see who God is and who Christ is, I thought it would be to appeal to his mind. So I gave him a lot of good, reasonable, intellectual reasons why, it's to, why he could believe in who Christ is and what Christ has done. And after I told him all of these reasons, I thought it was great. I thought, man, this is going to be airtight. He told me, he says, well, that's, that's good. He says, but unless I have a personal and undeniable experience of God, I don't think I can believe. And my friend didn't put his faith in his mind, but in his experience, in his feelings. Because, see, he had grown up in a world where he saw a lot of division. And he saw a lot of people who could logically and intellectually defend their position, and they were on complete contradictory sides of an issue. He's like, well, my logic doesn't always seem to lead me to the best place, so instead I'm going to trust my heart. I'm going to trust my feelings. I'm going to trust my experience to give me a reason to believe. So for some, we may trust our minds. For some, our emotions. And while our reason and our emotions are good things and the way that God made us, they don't hold up as foundations of our faith. Our reason has its limits. Like we can logically justify many evils, and the world certainly has. But our hearts, does that mean that they're better? No. Our hearts are just as deceitful. Our hearts and our feelings can lead us to a great spouse. They can also lead us to cut off a family member in bitter anger. So the question I have to ask myself, and I encourage us to ask ourselves, is am I willing to trust God is who he says and will do what he promises, even when I don't rationally understand or it doesn't always feel true? Because God told Abram, so I'm going to give you a son. Even though Abram knew logically, biologically, this isn't possible. God says, I'm going to give you a son. Even though Abram's like, I've been waiting a really long time. This is not feeling true to me anymore. Abram could have easily said, I don't understand it. I don't feel it. So I don't buy it. But in this moment, God led Abram to take his eyes off of his circumstances and even off of his own lack and limitation. And he says, I want to show you, Abram, who I am. And so I think 
that as Abram stood underneath the canopy of stars, he realized that if God can hang the heavens into place, no matter what he's feeling, no matter what he's experiencing, no matter what he may be able to rationally understand, God can fulfill his promise. And see, this is the very place where our faith begins to grow. In the place of awe and surrender. That as we stand in awe, we realize there really isn't anyone like our God. But as we realize that, that leads us to a place called surrender. Surrender means, say, you know what, even though I may not always understand. And though I may not always feel like it's true. I really can't trust anybody other than my God. And while Abram knew some things about God, what happened the moment he truly surrendered and put his highest trust in God? Because that was a big moment. And when we decide, hey, I'm going to trust God above all, what happens? God forms a relationship with us based on faith. Now, I want us to pay attention here. Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord, meaning he trusted that what God said is true. And he, God, credited it to Abram as righteousness. Now, this is big. I'll explain. And let me try, try to do my best here. Imagine you're going to the doctor. Because you have a terminal illness, and you heard that this doctor can heal you. And so you go up to the sterile receptionist window, and you see that lady sitting there. Name. And so you give her your name, and she... Sir, you have an outstanding balance that you have not yet paid. And until you pay this, sir, you uh, cannot see the doctor. Now, this is very much how a lot of us see God. We believe that if we are going to actually get a chance to see God, if we're going to be credited in the right, then we better pay up in order to see him. This is what most people assume, that I, I, I'm dealing with my same issues, Right, I keep circling around to my same fears, areas of distrust, areas where I need healing, and like, I, well, I, I, I got to turn to God. I'm at the end of myself. But we're thinking, I don't know if I can. Because have I done enough good to make God want to see me? Have I done enough good that would give credits in my ledger that would outweigh my bad so that God will, I am in a good enough relationship or standing to see God? But... If this is the kind of relationship God was looking for with us, the verse would say something like, Abram served the homeless. Abram went, adopted ten orphans. Abram, I don't know, prayed five times. And the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. And in our mindset, frankly, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But look at Genesis 15, 6, what it actually says. That Abram was credited as righteousness because why? He believed. He trusted. He had faith in the Lord. So this time, 
You're going to the doctor's office with a terminal illness. You heard who the doctor is. You heard the promise that he can heal, and you trust. But this time you open the door to that office, and you see it's not a receptionist you meet. It's the doctor himself, and he's waiting for you. And he calls you by name because he already knows you. And he invites you right back in. He doesn't check your ledger. He doesn't check your account. He's only looking for your trust. What kind of relationship does that sound like? A strictly professional doctor-patient relationship? No. It sounds like a friend. It sounds like the very relationship of a friend. And this friendship with God wasn't just for Abram. It was meant for us too. And Paul saw that later in the New Testament. And he said, so those who rely on faith, meaning their trust is in God and not their own do-good-ism. Right? He says, they are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then if we, if we think our good, do, our good deeds and our ability to maintain a good ledger obligate God to accept us, we're not really trusting God, are we? We're trusting in our own stuff. We're trusting in our goodness, not him. Which is exactly why God said, no, instead, I'm looking for a relationship with you based on your trust in me. And that is the language of friendship, love, grace. But Kirk, if I'm coming to God based on faith, I doubt a lot. I circle back to the same fear over and over. Can I trust that God still accepts me even when my fear or my faith is fickle? My trust issues keep coming up. Yes. Because even when we are faithless, our God can only be faithful. And after God declares Abram, Right with him, based on faith, something amazing happens. And that God, the sovereign Lord, makes a covenant with Abram. Now, if you remember from last week, a covenant with God means that he initiates and establishes a relationship with someone not from obligation, but his own choice. You know, that our only real example of covenant in our culture today is that of a marriage relationship. But in Abram's day, it was common for a, a covenant to be formed between a sovereign ruler and, and the people underneath that ruler. And just like wedding ceremonies affirm the marriage covenant, they had their own ceremonies that would affirm uh, these covenants between the ruler and the people. And and those ceremonies, much like this passage, were pretty bloody. <laughs> pretty bloody. And that animals were brought, they were cut in half, and they were laid on opposite sides, creating two rows on either side. And normally, at that point, each party forming that covenant with each other would pass through the middle of the animals, in the middle, as a way of demonstrating and saying that if I break the promises made in this covenant, I will be cursed and worthy of death like these animals. And in this story, we see similar things. We see God as a sovereign ruler coming to make a covenant with Abram. 
And we see Abram cutting the animals in half and laying them on either side. But what's so different about this is that God puts Abram to sleep. And a deep darkness comes over him. And instead of Abram walking between the animals, it says a smoking, blazing torch appears and goes through. What is that? We remember fire. Just like God was a pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the desert, fire often symbolizes God's presence. What does this mean? That God is passing through and he is saying, if this covenant is broken, if you, Abram, or your descendants are faithless, may this death be on me. Do you guys see what I'm talking about here? God is accepting the curse of the broken covenant on himself. And all of this is a foreshadowing of the day when our faithful Savior would take upon himself the curse of our sinful faithlessness. That realizing how God's covenant was a, 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 with Abram was a picture of Christ, Paul told the Galatians, he said, all who rely on the works of the law, meaning those who trust in your own goodness, those who think your own deeds can get you to God, he says, you're actually under a curse. He says, because you can't be fully faithful. No one can. Because of the very sin nature within us, we, it is impossible for us to be faithful all on our own. But knowing that, Paul said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of that law when he carried the cross up the hill called Calvary. And when the skies become dreadfully dark, he died, becoming the very curse for us, passing through death. And he did it all so that the blessing given to Abraham might not only be for the Jews, he said, but for all people through Christ. And what is that blessing? What is that promise? That it is a promise that we are made right with God, declared righteous before God by our faith in Christ, and that we are given his very Holy Spirit to live within us, and that we realize that we're this, when we stop breathing in this life, it's not the end, but just the beginning. And we realize that this is an eternal life. All of these promises and more, God pours out upon us in the very person of Christ, and we are responsible recipients of all of that by faith. And while we wait eagerly for God's promises to be fulfilled, we recognize that we have experienced it in part. That just as Abram or Abraham, he never really got to see the full fulfillment of God's promise to him. He never got to see all the descendants of the land in this life. But he did see the supernatural birth of his son Isaac. And for us, we have yet to see glory. We have yet to, to be in, in that place of eternal existence with God. We have yet to see this earth fully restored and brought back to what God has. But we have known that his son came and his son died. And his son rose from that grave. It says it's just the beginning of the resurrection to come for all who believe. And while we wait, we realize that God's 
the, the, the delay is not a denial of his promise. And even though we may be faithless, he is still faithful. And the journey of faith with all its twists and its turns is actually an ever-deepening trust in the faithfulness of God. So where do you find yourself staring at the same fear, struggles, or issues? Like my kid in the water, where do you find it tough to trust your father? Is it with your money, your retirement, your family, your kids, your future? Do you feel like you need to understand before you can trust? Or you're waiting for an experience before you'll really believe? Are you waiting to feel in control before you can rest? Are you holding your breath until you've, you, you finally get it perfect, whatever it is? Question one, where are you finding it tough to trust God? But then the second area is what if that area where you're finding a trust, that tension is actually an area where God is getting your attention? What if it's the very area where, where God says, instead of hyper-focusing on that, I want you to focus on who I am? So the second question is, who does God say he is? Who does his word reveal him to be? Because he is the everlasting, unchangeable I am who hung the stars into place. That he is the merciful father who is always listening. He is the, the mighty refuge and shield. He is the savior who redeems us from the pit. He is the one who knew no sin, who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who can only be faithful even when we are faithless. Do we stop and pause? And reflect and stand in awe of who he is. But after you do that, how do we really begin to grow in faith? Is now we take a step of trust based on who we know God to be. In order to replace fear with trust, my kid needed to jump in the pool. And if I'm going to trust that chair, I'm going to sit down. And so for us, when you think about that area of anxiety in your, in, or distrust, whatever it is, ask God, God, how would my life begin to look different if I trusted you fully in that area? Think about that. How would my life begin to look different if I fully trusted you in that area? Perhaps instead of overworking to try to control, you might choose to rest. That instead of trying to change our families, we might begin praying for them. That instead of needing to understand God and his plan, we may step back and say, you know what, I'm going to choose to worship. But what would it look like if you began to jump in the pool, so to speak? What does that jump look like? What is that step of faith? And even though at first it may go against your very natural inclination, as we take that step of faith, it's actually an exercise of trust that strengthens our ability to step out in faith and trust God fully and continue to grow. The journey of faith is an ever-deepening trust in the faithfulness of God. So how is God working to get your attention right now? Will you stand with me? Let's pray.
God, I, um, I recognize that in my mind, and I'm, I'm guessing in others too, that there have been times that, that we come back to struggling with the same issues, insecurities, doubts, fears, whatever they might be, areas of distrust. And the lie that comes over many people's minds is, ah, well, maybe God isn't real. Maybe God can't do what you think he can. Maybe God's not really at work in you. Maybe all of this is a myth. And God, I just, I want to say right now, that is a lie. And God, I pray instead that you come and speak a word of faithfulness over people here. And that just like you did with Abram, God, you led him through all these different stages and times where his faith was tested, but in the test came the growth. And so, Lord, I pray that you teach us in this season, wherever we are right now, just to marvel at who you are. And as we recognize who you are, show us how to live in accordance with that. How to trust in as we gain a deeper trust in you, as our faith grows, that our actions might begin to show it. So God, bring about fresh trust in us as your people, that we might be able to live freely and fully as you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen.